obviously spring break week, and even our regular preachers are traveling today. I think I've filled in probably for three out of the last four spring break weeks. Um, I remember a few years ago, the, the band was down to Raleigh and Richie with the guitar and banjo, and so you know, never know what you're going to get, but you have a little more space, so it's kind of luxurious this morning. Hopefully not this much space every week, but on spring break week, we'll have a little luxury. Uh, well, when we think of everybody traveling and all the miles they're traveling, uh, let's just open with a word of prayer for them and for our time this morning. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you uh, for your love for us, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gave his life for us, as we're going to hear this morning, the events leading up to that. And I just do have a special prayer for those traveling from our congregation this morning all over for spring break week, and I just pray you take them safely to and from and bless their time, uh, that it would be a time of refreshment and, and blessing to them. And we pray this morning that you would guide us in this study uh, in Mark chapter 15 here with the trials of Jesus, and that you would speak to us. We just count it a great privilege to open your word together and hear what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So those of, us, uh, those of you who have been with us uh, know that in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves in the last week of ministry, which is called Passion Week. Um, Jesus, on Monday of that week, came into Jerusalem to a large crowd. Some commentators think maybe as much as a quarter of a million people praising him with Hosanna. And they're hailing him as a, as a possible Messiah, a long-awaited Messiah who would rise up and at that time hopefully overthrow the Roman rulership of their land. And then on Tuesday, he comes into the city again. He cleanses out the temple from money changers and merchants that were corrupt and, and making a profit on people coming to do sacrifices at the time of the Passover. And then on Wednesday, he does teaching. Thursday sort of a quiet day, uh, teaching-wise, but then Thursday night is a Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Uh, Judas has already been plotting to betray Jesus at this time. He's already been paid off by the chief priests and rulers to betray Jesus at a convenient time. During this meal, he leaves uh, because he knows where Jesus will be and, and betrays Jesus to the leaders. Uh, and now at midnight, they, they leave the upper room, There's a, they sing a hymn, and then they go out to a place they frequently go to called the Garden of Gethsemane to be alone and, and pray. And that's when Judas shows up and betrays Jesus. There is, uh, some think, as many as a thousand people with him made up of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders and temple police. I uh, kind of wonder why so many people come. Uh, well, Jesus was popular with the crowds. They couldn't arrest him during the daytime for fear of the crowds. And so here they are at night, and in case a riot would, you know, if the people heard about this, they might come out of bed and show up, and there would be a riot. So they have this large group of soldiers and people to arrest him, but there's no riot. There's no rebellion. They march him off to the high priest's home and courtyard, first to the former high priest and still a powerful leader named Annas. Uh, he, he was deposed, but kind of like a godfather behind the scenes. He's still, he doesn't have the title, but he still has the power and influence with the people. And then Peter and John, two of his disciples, the rest, they all fled, but two of them try to follow Jesus and find out what's going on. The apostle John is known to the high priest, so he gets in the door, and then he lets Peter in, who tries to blend in. And as, and as we heard last week, Peter denies knowing the Lord. So Annas, first of all, questions Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. 
which Jesus sort of protests. He, he says, you could have taken me at any time in the temple when I was teaching in the temple or during the daytime. Um, but they're, they're doing something kind of illegal. See, in the Jewish legal system, the trials are supposed to be held during the daytime. Uh, but here they are holding these secret illegal trials at night with Jesus. So it's kind of the, the men involved here is sort of what you might call the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, they're known as the Sanhedrin, made up of the chief priests and, and uh, rulers and leaders of the time. Um, first the Annas, and they question him, and then they send him off to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. He's the son-in-law of Annas. And now this is all between 1 and 5 in the morning. They're not interested in a fair trial. They've waited until night, and they only have one goal in mind, and that's to condemn Jesus for being a blasphemer. They've heard him make claims that he's the son of God, that he's their Messiah, and, and they strong, that strongly offends them, and their desire is to really have him executed. So at Caiaphas's place, they, they subject him to several rounds of questioning, and they bring in witnesses that they've paid off to make statements against them, but the witnesses don't even agree with each other. And so it kind of ends up in frustration for them at the court. And, and then Caiaphas, at one point, asks him, comes right out and asks Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. He's point-blank asking him if he claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God. And Jesus answers, I am. And Caiaphas, the priest that says, tears his clothes and and grief and anger over the blasphemy, um, but probably inwardly you can imagine he's probably happy to have something to base his charges on. And so the group condemns him to death, they spit in his face, they blindfold him, they beat him, and they mock him. So those are the first two trials. There's two phases of his trials. There's these Jewish trials, and then it's going to shift into our passage this morning, which is the Roman trials, the civil trials. So that's where we come to in Mark 15 this morning and verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So now they've had their secret trials in the middle of the night. Now they're, as soon as it's daylight, probably 5 in the morning, they want to have some kind of appearance of legality to the whole thing. So they uh, hold official, an official mock trial, and they really just go over the same things. They accuse him of the same things. They question him with the same questions. He gives them the same answers. It's just kind of a repeat formality. And they, they again condemn him for being the son of God, claiming to be the son of God, which he agrees to. And, and they plot to put him to death. And it's interestingly at this point, uh, you know, in Mark here, we just get sort of a high-level summary of the trials. And, uh, but when you put the whole, uh, all the four Gospels together, you get a really rich picture of this whole scene. And so Mark 15, verses 1 through 15, is kind of our highlight text this morning, but I also want to draw in some of these other Gospels into kind of a cohesive story to give that rich picture of it. And, and at this point, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Judas, his betrayer, was remorseful after seeing him condemned, brought back the 30 pieces of silver he had been paid to betray Jesus, and goes out and hangs himself. Now, I don't think he was really repentant. Uh, these weren't tears of repentance. They were tears of guilt and, and remorse from the guilt of it. And he goes out and takes his own life. You know, in contrast, you have the Apostle Peter, who, who also betrayed Jesus, but then he went out and wept bitterly and was later restored to the Lord and his fellowship. So uh, Peter was a true disciple. So in Mark 15 here, they, they bound Jesus they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. 
The Gospels of John and Matthew say that they took Jesus to a place called the Praetorium and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, Pontius Pilate is an interesting character. He's a real historical character. Jewish historians have wrote about him. Um, archaeology has dug up a stone that actually shows an inscription that Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. And so we have historical evidence that Pontius Pilate was a real person who, who uh, put Jesus on trial. And they, they bring him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They want to have Jesus killed, but because of the Roman occupation, they didn't have the authority to do so. They took away that right. And so they come to Pilate. The Roman leaders usually worked from 5 in the morning as soon as sunrise came up till about noon. And so these Jewish leaders are right there on his doorstep as soon as it's day, wanting, him, wanting to get this over with quickly. Now, Jewish law, again, required 24 hours after a conviction before they could execute someone in case new evidence would come to light. But they're not interested in a fair trial here. They're not interested in new evidence. They just want to see Jesus put to death. Now, I, I, just a brief detour here at this point because... Humanly speaking, it looks like the Jewish leaders and the Roman rulers are the judges who have Jesus on trial here, and that they will be his executioner. But think about it from God's perspective. He's the one who, as the Bible says, was pleased to put his own son to death as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. You see, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the Apostle Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost— and in Acts 2, part of that sermon, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So, so you see in there, it was the people by their lawless hands who took him and crucified him and put him to death. But there's that phrase in there that Peter says, Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It, it was God's plan. Um, man betrayed him. Man judged him. Man crucified him. But it was all going according to the plan of God. In a sense, none of the leaders were really the ultimate cause of Jesus' death. They have responsibility, of course, but ultimately it was God accomplishing his sovereign purpose through the death of Christ to bring salvation to sinners. Everything is arranged according to the sovereign purpose of God. And man might have thought he was judging Jesus Christ that day, but ultimately it was them who were being judged. Judas, he sold out his soul. Annas and Caiaphas and all those leaders would one day be judged in the eternal court of heaven. And Pilate, uh, as we'll see, who thought he had so much power to save or release Jesus, was really on trial himself for his own eternal destiny. Uh, Kyle, a couple weeks ago, titled his sermon, Jesus on Trial. I, I think I might title this one, Pilate on Trial. Uh, because really, Pilate is the one on trial before the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back to Pilate. They bring Jesus before Pilate. And John, the Gospel of John tells us that he asked the Jews what accusation they were bringing against this man. They don't have any interest in going through another trial. They already know he's worthy of death in their plot. And they don't want Pilate, who, who they hated, by the way. They've had a few run-ins run with Pilate already. They don't want Pilate giving Jesus a legitimate trial. And they answer Pilate, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now, this is quite a sight for Pilate because the whole Sanhedrin 
probably about 70 people, is before him over this matter of one man. And Pilate's been the governor there for about 10 years, and now out of the blue, early in the morning, here's these 70 leaders, the complete Supreme Court of Israel, right before him on his doorstep, putting pressure on him to execute this man. Now, Pilate knew about Jesus already. He certainly would have known about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that week to the large crowds welcoming him as a Messiah. He would have known about Jesus clearing out the temple from the merchants because uh, probably Ananias, Annas, and Caiaphas were getting a cut out of that. And uh, that's kind of a big deal. Could have started a riot. And he would have known about Jesus, how popular he was with the people. And he sees Jesus brought before him. He's wondering, what's going on here? And, uh, and then Pilate, basically at this point, tells them to take Jesus and judge them, judge him according to their law. He basically gives them the permission to execute Jesus themselves. But the Jewish leaders, being as noble as they are, they don't want to overstep Roman law and do that. They don't want to deal with the crowds of people who might hold them responsible for that. And so they keep the case before Pilate, and the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that they lay out three charges, three charges against Jesus. Now, these charges aren't going to be the same ones they brought up in the middle of the night, you know, the ones about blasphemy, of him claiming to be the Son of God and the Messiah. Uh, no, they're going to have to come up with something different that Pilate will care about. The Roman rulers aren't going to care about these Jewish charges of blasphemy. So they come up with some crimes of treason. That's something Pilate might pay attention to. They say, we found this fellow perverting or misleading the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, these charges are false, of course. Uh, far from stirring up the nation, Jesus encouraged his followers to be good citizens and to live godly lives. He certainly didn't forbid anyone to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, in Luke 20, he, he encouraged them to pay taxes to Caesar. But the third charge was the one, the saying that he himself is a Christ, a king, was the one that was true in a sense, but also untrue in the sense that the Jews were spinning it in front of Pilate. And Pilate asked him in verse 2 of Mark 15, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives a great answer here. He doesn't come right out and say yes, because then Pilate might take that politically. And he doesn't come right out and say no, because he really is a Christ, the Son of God, a king. But Jesus goes on and, and tells him that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. And, and he tells him it is as you say. Because see, if Jesus' kingdom had been of this world, think about it, the Jews would not be bringing him before Pilate to be executed. They, they would probably be supporting him and helping him in the effort to overthrow Rome if he truly was a king stirring up a rebellion. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that they're accusing him of the very thing that they actually hoped would happen in their nation, that a Messiah would rise up and be their king and overthrow Rome. And that's the very charge they're bringing before Pilate. And if, he was, if his kingdom was of this world, his servants would have fought for him. Five hours earlier in the garden when he was arrested, they would have fought for him. And Jesus didn't have that. His kingdom wasn't of this world. And in John 18, he said, It was for this cause I was born and came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So God sent Jesus into the world to speak the truth about the kingdom of, not, a, not an earthly political kingdom, but the kingdom of salvation. 
and Pilate kind of cynically responds to that, what is truth? And Pilate goes out to the Jews again, and he, and he proclaims, I find no fault in this man at all. And it says, but they were the more fierce, says Luke, they, and saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And then here we are again in Mark 15, the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Pilate's starting to get a clear grasp of this situation now. The Jews had accused him of uh, claiming to be a king who was misleading the nation and, and planning to stir up a revolt against Rome. And Jesus doesn't appear that way at all. He doesn't need to answer a single charge against him from these Jews. If Jesus was guilty of being an insurrectionist, it would have been Pilate's duty to put him to death. And normally, Pilate would have expected the defendant in a case like this to loudly and passionately plead his case, whether guilty or not. But you don't see Jesus doing that here. He stands before them all, silently, with a deafening silence, no defense at all against this barrage of lies and charges. And, and I was thinking about that. The silence is just very impressive. Uh, and, it, and it brought to mind some of the other scriptures that prophesied about this moment of silence of Jesus. You think back to Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, uh, the passage of the suffering servant. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that was the Lord Jesus. Peter, many years later, wrote in 1 Peter 2, Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus, the innocent one, in a deafening silence before these charges. Now, before we get to verse 6 in Mark 15, Luke 23 records that Pilate, at this point, sends Jesus over to Herod, since Jesus is from Galilee, which is Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover that week, so it was convenient. And just briefly now, Herod was quite a character himself. His father, Herod the Great, was a great builder. He built the temple, he built cities, he built a lot of things. And then when he died in 4 BC, he divided his kingdom among his four sons, and he gave um, the area of Galilee to his son, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas then ruled for about 40 years, and of course, he was really subject to Rome too, just a, a vassal of Rome. Herod Antipas, uh, interestingly, if you know your gospel stories well, he is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded after John confronted him over an adulterous relationship he was having with the wife of his half-brother, Philip. Uh, when he, another story for another time. When he heard about Jesus working miracles, he was afraid that it was John the Baptist come back from the dead, according to Mark 6. In Luke 13, we see that he wanted to kill Jesus at one point, but he didn't have the opportunity. And we know, of course, it just wasn't in the plan of God yet. But he never actually met Jesus until now, and he was looking forward to seeing Jesus, and he was glad to see Jesus. And we're told that he, he had heard so much about him, and he had hoped to see a miracle done by him. He questioned Jesus for a while, but Jesus didn't answer any of his questions. Again, silent. So Herod sees this and he thinks this so-called king is just ridiculous and he subjects them to mockings and they 
put a gorgeous robe on him in mockery, and, they, and he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate and Herod are said to be enemies, but became friends that day. Now, Pilate was probably hoping Herod would confirm Jesus' innocence, and by not condemning Jesus and sending him back to Pilate, that's kind of in effect what he did. And so now we get back to Mark 15 to wrap up this final scene of judgment with Pilate here, verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, Pilate, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And when you, when you coordinate all four Gospels together, and if, if um, you'd like a good book on that, it's called A Harmony of the Gospels in general, but uh, John MacArthur wrote a book called One Perfect Life, where he's kind of interwoven the four Gospels together into one nice story paragraph format along with his commentary on it. It's called One Perfect Life. It's a very good reading if you're studying any of the Gospels to kind of put all those details together. And when you put them together, we learn that at every year at the feast, the governor would release one prisoner to them, to the people. It's sort of a gesture of goodwill from the Roman rulers to the Jewish people, whoever they requested. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And Barabbas, with his fellow rebels, had committed murder in a certain rebellion in the city. He's a notable prisoner, and his insurrection was probably very recent, and his upcoming execution, probably very soon. He, in fact, he could have very well been the one on the middle cross of the three crosses that day on that Friday. Pilate uh, sees this opportunity. He's now churning away from the Jewish leaders, and he thinks, I think I have a way to get this matter of Jesus off my hands and, and release him without having to execute this innocent man. And so he, this custom of releasing a prisoner to them uh, he brings it to the people. The people come and ask for that. And he's thinking, after the warm welcome they gave Jesus earlier in the week, they're sure to ask for Jesus over Barab Barabbas. And then he has a way out of this mess without having to execute Jesus. But while he's sitting on the judgment seat, Matthew tells us that his wife sent him a message. Sent his Pilate's wife sent Pilate a message to have nothing to do with that just man because she suffered many things in the dream because of him. It's sort of a strange thing that's mentioned there. Uh, her fears about the situation and the whole thing developing probably influenced her dream in some way. And, and, and so this message is sent to Pilate. And, and while he's getting this message and, and thinking about it, something else is going on among the crowd. The chief priests and the elders are mingling with the people. And they're persuading the crowds and stirring up the crowds to ask for the release of Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Now, I was thinking about this. Why would the people go along with that after they had just welcomed him in as their possible Messiah a few days earlier? And uh, I didn't see a good response in any commentary, but I was thinking maybe 
maybe at this point, Jesus doesn't look like a very promising Messiah. Uh, you know, he came in to great hail and acclamation, riding into Jerusalem, but, but now here he is kind of beaten up and bloodied. These charges of treason and rebellion are on him, and here he is before the Roman governor. The people are kind of dissolute, getting disillusioned. This was supposed to be our Messiah. He doesn't look like a Messiah. And so they're probably upset, and they're disappointed. And listening to the chief priests now, they think it would be a good idea to um, put release Barabbas and not this Jesus who was supposed to be their Messiah, but turned out not to be in their minds. Now Pilate, he goes on to the, to the people to state the innocence of Jesus. He wants to release Jesus, and he tells them that he will chastise or scourge Jesus and release him. But the chief priests and elders were told, stirred up the crowd so that they asked for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Pilate, he really doesn't want to see Jesus put to death. He knows he's an innocent man and still wishing to release Jesus. He calls out again and says, What then do you want me to do with Jesus, who is called Christ, whom you call the King of the Jews? And they all shouted to him, Let him be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate again still doesn't want to do this. And he says, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. So, so Pilate takes Jesus back into the praetorium and has him scourged, which is no light punishment in itself. A, uh, a Jewish scourging uh, would have been 39 lashes on the back with a whip. Romans didn't have a limit like that. They would have two lictors alternate blows with a leather whip with many strands, and then the ends of those strands were bits of iron and bone, and they gave relentless blows that would tear up the skin and the flesh down through the muscle to the internal organs with shreds of skin left hanging off the back. Many victims died just from the scourging before they ever got to the cross. And then the soldiers, were told, took a, a, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put on a purple robe on him and, and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and, and they hit him. Then Pilate takes Jesus out like this in this condition one more time, thinking the people are going to see him like this, and, and hopefully they'll think that's enough punishment and let him go at that point. He says, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. They've scourged him. He's saying, Isn't this enough? But they were insistent. They cried out all the more, demanding with loud voices, saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate says, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews say, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now there... <laughs> It's, it's finally out in the open. All the pretense of these charges against rebellion against Rome are gone. Now the real reason they're bringing him to Pilate is right out in front and center that, he, that the issue is of blasphemy, that he's claiming to be the Son of God. And Pilate knew it all along. He knew they, he, they brought Jesus over to him out of envy and jealousy. And here's the real issue right there. And, and Pilate's sort of afraid at this point, though. He's had a few run-ins with the Jews before, and he has a potential riot on his hands again. And he couldn't afford that, or else he would be recalled to Rome. And, and history tells us that he was recalled to Rome a few years later after an incident with the Samaritans. 
So Pilate goes back into the praetorium with Jesus and asks, Where are you from? And Jesus gives no answer. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus says, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And Pilate tried to release him one more time, and the, and the Jews cried out, and this is the deal breaker here for Pilate. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So there it is. They're threatening to report him to Caesar. Pilate brings Jesus out to the judgment seat at that point, and he says, Behold your king. And they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate, one last time, says, Shall I crucify your king? And the people says, We have no king but Caesar. And it says, And their words prevailed. Pilate then washes his hands and tells the people that he is innocent of the blood of this just person. And the people's response in Matthew says, His blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them Barabbas, the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. Uh, commentator William MacDonald says, The very ones who were charging Jesus with treason against Caesar were asking for the release of a man who was actually guilty of that crime. So how ironic is that? It's little wonder that the Lord destroyed that city and the nation of Israel in AD 70, is it? And it's still under a spiritual judgment today until they repent and come back to Christ. Some do individually. But one day, Jesus will come back as a judge and he will be king of kings and lord of lords on earth. Uh, that's not what he came for the first time. He came to be, the, he was the lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of all who would believe. And he came as a lamb who was silent before its shears, an innocent lamb. He's, he's called, according to Peter, the just for the unjust. Um, our Lord Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. He committed no sin. He committed no rebellion. He did nothing deserving of death. And yet, he's condemned to death. And my thought after reading all this and thinking about this is, how can this happen? I mean, this is Jesus. How can they treat him like this? He's the Lamb of God. He's the one now being slapped and hit and spit on and crowned with thorns, whipped to shreds, blasphemed over and over again. The Apostle Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And that's just it, isn't it? The just for the unjust. We're the unjust. Christ came to redeem sinners. He came to seek and save that is what is lost. And the question that Pilate asks the people is a question we have to answer today as well. What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the King of the Jews? If you've admitted your sinfulness to God and understood and believed the truth of Christ as death and resurrection and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, according to Romans 10, you will be saved. On the other hand, you might hear about Jesus, hear about who he is and what he's done and why you don't see yourself hating Jesus like a, like a Judas and Ananus and Caiaphas and, and the, the other Jewish leaders. 
having warm feelings toward Jesus isn't enough either. Because if it's not an answer of belief in him, think about this question. What is Jesus going to do with me based upon whether I believe in him or not? Because if the answer is Jesus is not my king, one day the judge, the righteous judge, will say, I do not know you and send you to eternal punishment. You see, it's not, it's not really Jesus on trial here. We are the ones on trial before a holy and righteous judge. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the true Son of God, sinless, never committed the crime, but he was sent to the cross to die, not for his sins, but for our sins, as our substitute. And Barabbas is kind of a neat picture of that. Barabbas was the one who deserved to go to the cross and die. He was released, and Jesus was sent to the cross to die. We're kind of like a Barabbas. We're under the judgment of God. We're condemned to death because of our sin before a holy God. And yet, and yet we're the ones, uh, after putting faith and trust and receiving the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus, who are released from the penalty of sin. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Peter, again in that sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he concludes the sermon by saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Probably a lot of those in the crowd who heard that sermon that day were those in the crowd saying, Crucify him. And this sermon cut to their heart. It says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And this is what we should do. Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, including us this morning, as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent and let us be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, let's just conclude in a word of prayer uh, as we lead into communion. Father, we're... We're just so deeply grateful um, that you've given us this complete and rich picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his trials. Um, it, it really was the worst of wickedness of man that day. And it was also the best of God that day. Your, your love was on display for sinners that day in a way that's just really incomprehensible. Uh, I can't really understand or come to grasp with in terms with how the innocent Lord Jesus Christ could be put through all of that. Why would he do that? Why should he have done that? Why would you put your son whom you love through that? And it was because for a reason we can't understand, you love us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs salvation this morning, that you would work that mighty work of grace and saving grace in their heart. That all who hear this message would turn to Christ so that he would never be their judge, but only their redeemer and savior. 
Help us, Lord, in response to this message, to live lives that honor, uh, lives of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. We just thank you for now as we take the bread and the wine, how appropriately we do this uh, to remember his body that was given, his blood that was shed for us on that cross that day. And Lord, just with hearts full of thanks, we just praise the one who was the just, giving his life for the unjust that day. Amen. Merciful.